Hello, welcome along to a brand new episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly Podcast. My name's Dan, and this is the smartest show in the history of the universe. You've stumbled upon the only podcast out there that uncovers all the secrets lurking throughout the solar system, further away, throughout the galaxy, around the whole place. We will look them all up. Now, this week, uh, we're looking at one of the most mean and cruel insects in the world. And it's the sting that does the most damage. It is supremely painful. The venom shoots into your aches for ages. Now, handily, it doesn't usually get many humans. But listen to the name. Also, you can find out how we know that fish are getting very excited. Reefs are very important to the life of the ocean. They help fish eat and breathe. And they're so excited that this one's coming back. Plus, I've got your questions answered as always. This week, they're about colours, candles and clicks. It's coming up right now. Let's catch up with a proper genius. His name is Sir Sidney McSprocket. Now, he's joining us every week at the moment to talk about some other geniuses and the brilliant inventions that they've made and how they've changed the world. Sir Sidney McSprocket's Great British Minds. Oh, hello, Sir Sidney McSprocket here. Now, a good designer has many fine qualities. You could say uh, being a proud Scottish laird might be one. (laughs) Aye, but that's not for me to say. One such quality creative people have is the ability to change the way we look at things. Come along, I'll show you what I mean. We'll have to go back to Victorian times to start. The Victorians loved new and exciting things, and in the Great Exhibition of 1851, they celebrated the best of the best. It was a grand affair, with many inventions on show. One of the most exciting, and one said to be a favourite of Queen Victoria herself, was the stereoscope, designed by Sir Charles Wheatstone. The stereoscope was an exciting new device for viewing photographs. It transformed normal flat images into 3D images before the viewer's eyes. You could say it was the original virtual reality. Stereographs of inside the Great Exhibition still exist today and allow us to imagine what it might have been like inside the Crystal Palace. There's another great British mind who's changed the way we look at things too, in a slightly different way. His story starts in the 1980s. The 1980s was the decade when computing, both in offices and homes, became more commonplace, and the first mobile phones began to be in use. These first mobile phones were the size of a house brick, and the computers of the time had to accommodate huge, bulky monitors. Now, the technology inside these gadgets moved on, and of course that meant over time all those gadgets could become smaller, and screens especially could become flatter and lighter. But it was the work of one man that turns these functional items into fashion statements. Sir Jonathan Ive. He is best known for his work at a company you've probably heard of. That's Apple, in case that wasn't quite clear. 
Sir Jonathan is often called one of the best and certainly one of the most famous technology designers in the world. As the top designer at Apple, he's worked on numerous products, including the iPod, iMac, MacBook, iPad, Apple Watch and many, many others. When people think about Apple gadgets, they often think of very sleek, white, slim designs that feel nice to hold in your hand and that also look nice. That's all down to Sir Jonathan. In fact, when people think of Apple in any way, not just the gadgets, but the shops, the packaging and the way the gadgets work, it's all down to the same qualities. Clean, simple and highly functional designs. It's made Apple one of the most famous tech companies and certainly one of the richest. So, Sir Jonathan changed the way people thought about technology. It wasn't just doing a job, it was a cool thing to have and to collect. Many people eagerly wait to see what the next iPhone will look like, and the launch queues, well, it's like there's an A-list celebrity. Sir Jonathan is truly a great British mind. I wonder if you have a way of looking at things differently, how things look, how they feel, and what they're made of, for example. If you do, who knows? Perhaps you could come up with a, a tremendous new design yourself. <laughs> right now, I've designs on a cup of tea and some tablet. The edible sort. So, you'll have to excuse me. Tatty bye for now. Sir Sidney McSprocket's Great British Minds. With support from the Royal Commission 1851. Find out more at funkidslive.com slash mixprocket. Let's get to your questions then. It's my favourite part of the show. You send over your science niggles, things you can't quite figure out. Leave it as a review for me over on Apple Podcasts. Then I do all the digging for you. First up this week is from Nico, who wants to know, why is fire orange? Well, it's not just orange, Nico. There's a lot of different colours in flames. Fire needs oxygen to burn. That's why in the centre of the flame, it's normally blue. Because there's not much oxygen in it. It's a little bit starved, so it glows a bright blue. That's also the hottest part. Now, flames are orange when there's a lot of the element sodium in there. This element makes a chemical reaction which gives off orange flames. Now, there's a lot of sodium in wood, which is why perhaps when you're around a bonfire or it's fireworks night, that's why the fires you see are bright orange, because there's a lot of wood in there. Next up this week, more fire. Uh, This is from Alex, who wants to know how do candles work? Now, it all comes back to the, the fire trilogy, the fire triangle. They need three things to start. The fires, they need oxygen, they need heat, and they need fuel, something to burn. Now, a candle has all of these. A candle's got wax around the outside and then a thin bit of kind of string in the middle. It's called a wick. Now, the wick catches fire and it burns down. This sucks oxygen into the middle of it and the wax all around the outside melts. The melted wax then gets sucked into the wick, which gives it more fuel for the fire to burn. It's this big cycle of heat and flames, heat and flames, until the candle runs out. 
Lastly, this week, it's from Amy, who wants to know, why does my wrist click when she turns it? She means her wrist click. Not She's not turning my wrist. Uh, well, it's all because in the joints of your body, Amy, between the bones of your fingers or in the joints between your wrist and your arm, in that gap, there is a liquid. It helps it move without grinding. Now, when you pull on your fingers or when you move your wrist awkwardly, the movement sucks the gas out of that liquid and it breaks free. When it breaks free, it makes a popping sound. That's why it clicks. Nothing to worry about if it happens every now and then. If it's always happening, though, maybe see someone about that. Thank you very much for the question, Amy. If there's something you want answered on the Science Weekly next week, leave it as a review for us over on Apple Podcasts. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. This week, we're talking all about those vaccines that we've heard so much about this year. Professor Katie Ewer has been investigating the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, studying samples from volunteers to find out how well people's bodies respond to them. Uh, Katie, this is a big deal. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So studying samples from volunteers, what does that actually mean? When the volunteers come to the clinic that we run to have their vaccinations, we take a little tiny sample of blood from them. And that blood comes back to my lab. And we have a look at that and we try and understand what's happening in people's bodies to stop them getting infected. What are you looking at in the blood that shows you this? What type of signs do things? What what does the blood do? How do you know how it's reacting? So there are two things we're looking for, and you might have heard of some of these before. The first thing is antibodies, and these are special things in our our body that fight infection and stop us from becoming sick. And the other thing we look for are a special type of blood cell called T-cells, and they're also really important for stopping our body getting infected with viruses and helping us to fight off viruses like chickenpox or a cold. When you're looking at these things in the microscope, this might be a bit of a ridiculous question, but... What can you see the antibodies do and these these can you actually see them like battle with an intruder? So with antibodies, we can't. So what we're usually looking for with antibodies is just to see whether they can stick to the virus or a little piece of the virus and whether they are able to sort of recognise and and get rid of that virus. With T cells, if we use really, really powerful microscopes and if we dye the cells and, and the viruses with special dyes, then you actually can see the T cells interacting with cells. And it's very, very cool. There are some great online videos um, where you can watch this happening in real time. What does a vaccine do to us? How is this Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine and indeed all of the vaccines, how are they helping our bodies uh, plan for COVID? So vaccines are really good at training your body on how to fight an infection. So if we give you a vaccine against flu, we're telling your body how to fight off a flu infection so that when you come into contact with a flu infection in the winter, as we all do, your body goes, aha, I've seen this before because I've had a vaccine. I know how to fight this. I can make a response. And that's what stops us from being sick. If you don't have that vaccine, your body encounters or comes into contact with that virus for the first time and it doesn't know how to fight it. So really vaccines are like training camps and preparation for your body to fight off infection. Recently, there's been a big focus on getting a third jab, a booster vaccine. Uh, What is that doing? Why is our body kind of forgetting all the training that it's been doing in the last year or so? 
So it's not that it's forgetting. Um, when you have a vaccination, it, it gives your body a memory of that so that when you come back the second or the third time, um, you recognise the same the same thing. The booster dose is there like a bit of a top up, really. So you still have the antibodies from your first and second doses. This third dose is really just to give you an extra special top up to help us get through the winter when we know the chances of catching these viruses are highest. So you've been studying samples from volunteers all year. Uh, well, what have you noticed? What things have you spotted about how our bodies are responding to these vaccines? So the thing that surprises me most um, about all of this is that we have so many really effective vaccines available. I've been making vaccines for different diseases for uh, 13 years now, and it's it's really hard to make good vaccines that work very well. So the thing that surprises me is that, what are we now, about two years since the pandemic started, and we've got eight different really safe really effective vaccines for COVID. And that's an amazing achievement. That's the thing that really surprises me most. A lot of people are quite worried and maybe people listening to this, their parents might be quite worried that the vaccine has been made in such a short amount of time. And now we've got eight of them, as you've said. Um, what, what do you think about that? How can you kind of ease us and make us feel better um, that you've ma- managed to make this incredible vaccine in such a short amount of time? So I work in a place called the Jenner Institute um, at Oxford University, and all we do is make vaccines. And we make lots of vaccines, but we use the same technology each time. So the technology and the science that we use to make the COVID vaccine with AstraZeneca is the same technology that we use to make a vaccine for malaria or influenza or tuberculosis or any of those diseases. So the actual backbone of the vaccine is the same for whichever disease. It's a bit like having a DVD player and you just change the disc each time. The DVD player is always the same and that's the same with the vaccine. The actual um, technology that we use to make the vaccine is always the same. We just put in the instructions for whichever virus uh, we're making the vaccine for. So in this case, the disc would be COVID. Um, and that's why we're not starting from scratch each time. So when we started making this vaccine at the beginning of 2020, we didn't start with a blank piece of paper. We started with our existing technology that we know how to use and we've been using for well over a decade now. And we just change it very slightly to make it work for COVID. I'm absolutely amazed at how you do this. Uh, when, when we when we have the vaccine, uh, I guess really simply, what's in it? Like, what is it made of? Like, what are these incredible things that go into my body that trick it into thinking it's a it's a form of coronavirus? Well, so what we do is we we take the special um, uh, flag, if you like, off the outside of the coronavirus, and this is a special protein called spike. You might have heard of this. So spike proteins are found on the surface of lots and lots of different viruses. And so we know from other vaccines that we've made for diseases like Ebola, for example, that those outside spike proteins make excellent vaccines. So we take the genetic information uh, for that spike protein, and that's what we put into the vaccine. And that helps your immune system make those antibodies against the virus. Now, our body has other ways that it tries to deal with viruses on its own, uh, scabs and and snot. Uh, What are they doing? Why are they important? Why do we get scabs and snot? So we all make lots and of snot, or to give it its scientific name, we'll call it mucus, which is a slightly more fun word. Um, (laughs) um, They're there to protect us against uh, all types of infection and 
there are really our body's first line of defense against all of the bacteria and viruses that are outside in the world. So as you breathe in, if you were to breathe in, I don't know, some bacteria or some viruses that were in the air from your classroom or from a supermarket that you happen to be in, that mucus or snot will help trap those bits of virus and stop them getting into your nose and mouth and stop you getting infected. So they're like a physical first line of defense, a first barrier against infection. So they're really, really important because they help um, support the work that the vaccine does by um, making... I'm James Stewart. And in Saving Planet Earth, I'm going to be joined by some of the world's top scientists to introduce you to some of the weird and wonderful ideas being trialled to try and save our planet. Led, of course, by your questions. Hi, James. I know that climate change is affecting our oceans. Is there anything that's being done to look after it? And one of the solutions involves dolphin poo. (laughs) This is Saving Planet Earth. Available wherever you get your podcasts. The, the job of the vaccine that bit easier. Amazing. Uh, it's been so fascinating because we've heard so much about vaccines over the last year. Uh, a lot of people saying a lot of different things and to chat to someone that's been there, like on the ground floor, putting this together has just been amazing. Katie, you are, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Right, it's time for this week's Dangerous Dan, the part of the show where we look at the most mean, cruel and deadly things in the universe. This week, it's the Velvet Ant. The Velvet Ant goes by an incredibly mean nickname, much more terrifying, which shows exactly what it does. They call it the Cow Killer. Now this ant, the Velvet Ant, is actually a wasp. But because some of them don't have wings, it makes them look a bit like ants. You find them in the United States of America, and they look mean. It's kind of like a warning sign with thick, velvety orange and black fuzz all over it. They make a a squeaking noise when they're under attack. That's to warn whoever is there to say, look, I've got an incredibly painful sting. Don't come further. Thing is, the sting takes a lot of energy. They don't really want to use it. Quite often in the wild, that's why venomous creatures are brightly coloured. It's not to attract creatures, it's to warn them away because they really don't want to have to resort to stinging them. Uh, This ant, the velvet ant, it's incredibly fast too, and it's the sting that does the most damage. It is supremely painful. The venom shoots into your aches for ages. Now, handily, it doesn't usually get many humans. But listen to the name. When unsuspecting cows get too close, when they tread on that velvet ant, it turns this insect into the cow killer. It's time to check in with another one of our favourites on the show now. This is Karina and her superhero alter ego, K-Mystery. This week, it's all about plastics, chemistry and climate change because we know plastic is bad for the environment. So K-Mystery is helping Karina and us understand how plastic contributes to climate change and also what chemistry can do to help. K-Mystery. Chemistry and climate. New research is confirming that single-use plastic bottles are one of the fastest-growing contributors to greenhouse gases, which are responsible for climate change. That's weird. How can a bottle affect the weather? Hi, Karina! Your superhero chemistry alter ego here to help unpuzzle plastics. Oh, hey, chemistry. I know plastic is bad for the environment, but how does it affect the climate? And to be honest, what's any of it got to do with chemistry? It's everything to do with chemistry. You just have to take a closer look. Come on. 
Nearly every piece of plastic that exists in the world started as a fossil fuel. And greenhouse gases are emitted at every stage of the plastic's life cycle. From extracting those fossil fuels from the ground... ...to transporting them to processing centres... ...where they are refined and onto factories... ...where they are manufactured into the products we use. And not forgetting how we manage the waste... Producing plastics can add around 850 million metric tons of greenhouse gases to the atmosphere every year. That's the equivalent of 189 coal-fired power stations. Making plastic is one of the most intensive greenhouse gas industries and the fastest growing. And all of those greenhouse gas emissions are accelerating climate change. So it's the greenhouse gases from making plastic that's to blame. But don't plants and other things absorb those gases? You're right. Organic things like plants and soil are carbon sinks. That's something that absorbs more carbon from the atmosphere than it releases. Another massive carbon sink are our oceans. Come on, I'll show you. The oceans have absorbed up to 40% of all man-made carbon since the industrial era. That's amazing! But a problem that scientists have identified is that microplastics are reducing the ability of the ocean to act as a natural carbon sink. If we do nothing to reduce our plastic waste, by 2040, the volume of plastics around us will have doubled and the amount entering the oceans will have tripled. Sounds scary. And that's where chemistry comes in. First up, is the challenge to make fewer plastic items from fossil fuels. Today, most plastics are fossil fuel-based, but biochemists, they're scientists who study the chemistry of living organisms, are creating ways to make plastic out of carbon dioxide and plant byproducts, such as agricultural waste and plant material like fibres left over from juicing carrots. That's so cool. <laughs> I guess we need to make it easier for plastics to biodegrade too, so they don't hang around whether in oceans or on land. You got it. Plastics take anywhere from 500 to 1,000 years to degrade. The most common type of plastic in everyday use is called PET. It's very hard to degrade because of its highly stable molecular structure and resilience against moisture. After all, it was designed to store liquids. But Japanese researchers have discovered a microbe that can break down PET. They've also identified enzymes to stimulate microbes to break down PET even faster. There's even a super enzyme that's been created that can degrade plastic six times faster. And all sorts of microbes, such as bacteria and fungi, might be able to munch and degrade plastics, including some synthetic materials that our clothes are made of. You'll even find some solutions down on the farm. Oh, no. 
Research by Austrian scientists have found that microbes found in cattle stomachs can break down certain kinds of plastic. Well, less waste all around. We can all do our part to use less plastic and to recycle what we can. Online, you'll find a cool experiment where you can compare the different ways things biodegrade. Why not check it out? Chemistry, Chemistry and Climate, with support from the Royal Society of Chemistry. Find out more and get hands-on with chemistry at funkidslive.com slash chemistry. Before we go, let's squeeze in this week's science in the news. Fish are getting so excited about a coral reef in Asia coming back to life that they've been heard whooping and hollering. Reefs are very important to the life of the ocean. They help fish eat and breathe. And they're so excited that this one's coming back because it's brilliant for the whole ecosystem under the sea. Also, a brand new telescope is being built here in Europe to head to space. It's called Ariel. It's hoping to launch in 2029, so in what, seven years' time. And it will study planets and stars to see how they change through time. And finally, NASA, the American space people, have unveiled their new class of potential astronauts. Ten people, six men, four women, were picked from 12,000 who applied, and they've now got two years of training before they might get to fly to the moon. That is it for this week's Fun Kid Science Weekly. Thank you so much for listening. If there's something sciencey that you want to know, if there's a question that you want answered next week, maybe something Christmassy, let me know. Leave it as a review over on Apple Podcasts. While you're there, it's one of the best places that you can hear loads of science shows that we do loads more podcasts. They're on Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever you get your shows. You can find them on the free Fun Kids app at funkidslive.com too. And Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station from the UK. Listen all around the country on your DAB digital radio on that free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com. I'm James Stewart, and in Saving Planet Earth, I'm going to be joined by some of the world's top scientists to introduce you to some of the weird and wonderful ideas being trialled to try and save our planet. Led, of course, by your questions. Hi, James. I know that climate change is affecting our oceans. Is there anything that's being done to look after it? And one of the solutions involves dolphin poo. This is Saving Planet Earth, available wherever you get your podcasts.